Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Tonight's classic episode is something that um, something that still stays with us all today, I think, or it stays with me for sure. The history of Iran, which is always called uh, a boogeyman in the West, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, I would just say I learned a ton in the research for this episode, stuff that I was never taught in school, stuff that was completely alien to me when it comes to history. Like rich, rich history of a country that's in the news all the time. Matt, would you say you learned a little bit of stuff they don't want you to know? Yeah. Let's jump right in. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control, Deckett. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know. And we are recording on breaking news this this time around the table, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's start with the most recent news as we're recording. On May 8th, 2018, the U.S., the United States, announced that it was withdrawing from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA, for those of us who are acronym fans. I'm a fan. It's also known as the Iran deal. Yeah, or the Iran nuclear deal here in the States, right? Uh, That's an easy way to explain it in a few syllables on the evening news. And this decision was met with pretty widespread uh, consternation from some of our allies and uh, fellow participants in this deal. And I guess we're going to go into why that might be. Yeah, it's certainly a subject that is just rife with complexity. And we're going to look into the history today. We're going to look into what it could mean for everyone involved. And let's talk about the deal itself. True. Yeah, the deal was signed into effect in 2015 by members of the UN's Permanent Security Council, essentially the winning side of World War II, plus Germany and the EU as its own entity, and then Iran and uh, the United States, which was, you know, part of the Permanent Security Council, but they're, uh, they're one of the main actors in today's episode. In exchange for freezing aspects of Iran's nuclear enrichment program and submitting to intense, historically unprecedented uh, investigation programs on site in the country, Iran would receive partial sanctions relief. This would allow the economically strapped country access to billions of dollars uh, 
both in terms of potential billions of dollars for trade and in terms of billions of dollars of real-world money that have been held frozen offshore by foreign powers like the European Union and the United States. I'm a big dummy. When we say sanctions, that can mean a couple different things. What, what does it mean in this particular situation? Is it like a trade – like blocking, barring of trade? Great question. Yeah, because again, uh, for for those of us who just hear these terms thrown around in the news, they're not often explained. So sanctions are in general penalties for breaking a law or an agreement, just in general. You can give someone a sanction yourself should you somehow convince them you have the authority to do it. In the geopolitical sense, however, sanctions are part of what we would call sticks and carrots of diplomacy. A carrot is an incentive. We will give you X amount of dollars to do what we want or we will give you this nuclear hardware or these uh, chemical agents. It is based around trade. Right. Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, thank God, today. Yeah. Military actions can also be considered sanctions depending on how they're rationalized. It could be something like imposing – penalties or making it less profitable to do business kind of? I mean Mm – Or impossible. Yeah. Right. So typically when we hear the phrase sanctions apply, what we're talking about is a genre of sanctions called economic sanctions. I mentioned the carrots earlier. Economic sanctions are a form of stick, a form of punishment. So not enticing a state to change its behavior but attempting to force it to do so. The role of sanctions in this conflict cannot be overstated and it's primarily due to the actions of the United States. The United States is one of the few countries in the world that can unilaterally apply sanctions. They can take their toys, they can leave the playground and now no one else can play. That's a, that has been the case for a long time and that's a vast oversimplification but here's, here's how it works. When the U.S. wants to uh, sanction a country, it helps if they have an alliance with other allies. But if they decide to go it alone, they can still screw up the entire Rube Goldberg-esque thing that is international trade. Let's say they w- let's say they do an economic sanction regime wherein they say no U.S.-based businesses, so no like Boeing, no Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Northrop Grumman, uh, no financial institutions can economically interact with a certain country or with trades involving that country. At first, that sounds like, okay, U.S. is leaving the game. There are more fish in the sea. There are more badgers in the bag. But the problem is almost all financial interactions at that level at some point in the chain travel through a U.S. financial institution. And once they do, the money stops, the game, the bubble pops. And on the ground, this means that a sanctioned country literally cannot buy or sell certain things, not just weapons of war, but things like medical equipment, industrial components, you know, stuff like, let's say you have an ice cream factory and you need a large enough uh, boiler for some reason. We, obviously, we have not researched ice cream factories. But, uh, but if that if that specific component falls under the sanction, then it becomes very, very difficult for you to buy it. So when Cuba, for instance, had sanctions during the Cold War, uh, it was not able to get life-saving medical equipment. And that's why if you travel to Cuba today, as uh, some, some of my contacts had recently, and you tour their hospitals, several very important pieces of equipment in the hospital are going to be German stuff from the 50s because that's all they could get. Mm-hmm. These hospitals, by the way, are not air-conditioned, just to illustrate that. Man. So, so the whole point with this <sighs> deal mm-hmm. that, uh, that went through, it was, it was very difficult for it to actually happen. Right. And it, it happened in the previous administration uh, under President Obama. And it's if you look at the agreement itself, there are all kinds of things that – have problems with it, at sure. least on that either side would say, this is kind of a big deal. Well, that's uh, how you know it's a compromise, right? Yeah, exactly. no one's entirely happy. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt, you're absolutely right. It took a long time to get everyone to the table first and then to achieve anything. Most of the global community was completely appalled to see the U.S. withdraw, although under U.S. law, it is legal to do so. Because our side of this agreement was what's called an executive order. It was not ratified by Congress. Mm -hmm. And because it's an executive order, that means whomever occupies 
the position of commander in chief afterwards can just get rid of it without without running it past Congress or the American people. And there were there was international support for this deal, primarily uh, U.S. allies Saudi Arabia and Israel, who were also the key regional rivals of Iran. They applauded the move. They said this is a way to prevent nuclear war. Yeah. Well, a lot of this has to do with these things called sunset clauses, which mm-hmm. were built into the agreement itself, mm-hmm. and specifically with the enrichment process and what which centrifuges could be used at what time. I think there was like an eight-year, what they called sunset clause, mm-hmm. where after eight years, they could then begin enriching uh, uranium with this these new versions of their centrifuges. Fire them back up. Much more efficient. Yeah, exactly. But it, the whole idea was that the people who are fighting against us being in this deal were saying they're just using these sunset clauses to then be to be able to achieve nuclear weapons anyway or they're secretly still yeah. conducting these things despite the investigations but isn't there argument that they're just doing this to have nuclear power like we do that's, everybody's argument yeah. <laughs> is that they're, that's the thing yeah. everybody's argument is that uh, we are only pursuing nuclear capabilities to replace fossil fuels yeah that's since a nuclear weapon since before a nuclear weapon was even devised. Sure. And it's tricky because when when you study this kind of stuff, the enrichment process for a weapon and for a power plant are identical. The only difference is the degree of enrichment. How so long do you do you it? Just keep going. Yep. And that's a, that regardless of what side you fall on, that's a huge dilemma. North Korea, for instance, when um, when you speak with North Korean diplomats for years and years and years, uh, they were saying that they were peacefully pursuing nuclear power as a means of economic independence, not as a means of starting war. And who believed them? No one. No, no one. No one would believe the U.S. if they said that. So – Right now, here in the states where stuff they don't want you to know is based, public opinion is divided on whether this was a smart decision to exit a critically flawed agreement and again, one that was not ratified by Congress or a short-sighted bellicose move to push the region and ultimately the entire world closer to war. But let's hold on for a second and, and rewind. Let's ask some questions. How did we as a species get to this point? How much does the average person in the U.S. know about Iran, about its history, about every single thing leading up to this moment? I would say not very much. At least I didn't before studying this a while back when we touched on the petrodollar and a couple other things like that. Uh, So let's just jump right into it. Here are the facts. We'll go through a very quick broad brush Iran from the beginning of time to 2018. Uh, (laughs) We'll make it quick. We are not hardcore history, which is a great show. I just want to point out. So Iran is home to one of the world's oldest, continuous major civilizations, meaning that it was never a dead man's land after it started. You can find settlements dating back to 7000 BCE. I mean, they're not super glamorous. It's not like a a casino or something. Yeah, but there were humans there living together. Yes, yes. And we have to remember everybody involved in these stories. These are all real people. Ancient Iran was also known as Persia. Uh, It's an historic region of southwestern Asia that is kind of located where Iran is now. It's roughly the same boundary. The term Persia was used for centuries mainly by folks in the West to designate just regions where people spoke the Persian language or spoke Farsi and what they perceived as Persian culture predominated. But – More correctly, the term Persia applies to a part of southern Iran, which was known as Persis or Pars or Parza or modern-day Fars. And Parza is the name for an Indo-European nomadic people who got into the region around 1000 uh, BCE. And the the first mention occurs from uh, an Assyrian king back in 844 BCE. So this is old. Uh, you may recognize the historical figure Cyrus the Great. He uh, was the founder of the Archimedean Empire and he was, this was the first Persian Empire. It ruled a huge swath of land, Central Asia, North Africa, the Balkans – 
and the seat of power was Persopolis. This was around 550 to 330 BC. So you'll hear a lot of people say it was the first quote-unquote world empire. It was the only civilization in all of history to connect 40% of the globe. Granted, there weren't as many people around at that time, but uh, there were about in 480 BC, for example, there were about 112 million people, give or take. Uh, 49.4 of those were members – 49.4 million of those, excuse me, were members of the first Persian empire. And then there's a huge change that affects the world and Iran today and that was the Arab invasion. So there's this huge misconception that's uh, distressingly common uh, and it's the following. Many people think that Iranians or people from Iran are Arab. They are not. They may speak Arabic but if they did, they they learned it as a foreign language. Right? Mm. And – uh, Iran is, however, an Islamic country. During the 8th to 10th centuries, it, Islam became the dominant religion and the pre-existing dominant religion, uh, Zoroastrianism, declined as well as many of the other associated religions. But thankfully for everyone, and I do mean everyone, the achievements and the scientific progress of the previous Persian civilizations were not lost. They were absorbed by this new growing civilization. And let's – so that's ancient Iran. Multiple yeah. invasions, not Arabs, was, uh, was a great empire, free Islam before any of that happened. Now let's fast forward to the, the history of modern Iran and of course – their oil industry. It starts in 1901. A British speculator named William Darcy paid Iran uh, and was allowed to explore and develop their oil resources in the south of the country. Yeah, and it was that discovery of oil in 1908 that led to the formation in 1909 of the London-based Anglo-Persian Oil Company or APOC. So then by 1914, the British government had gained control over the Iranian oil industry, direct control, which it would not give up for 37 years. Uh, then after 35, the APOC was called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company or IOC, AIOC. And today? It's just a good old BP. Yeah, British Petroleum. Yeah, that BP down the street from you. Yeah, they're just – all about simplifying those uh, those acronyms. I like it. Um, they signed a 60-year agreement in 1933 to establish a flat payment to Iran of four pounds, four British pounds for every ton of crude oil exported and uh, denied Iran any right to control oil exports. So you get your flat fee. You don't get a say in where we're selling it, how we're selling it, or what kind of deals we're cracking. Sounds like a sweetheart deal. Well, I mean, we can, not for <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We can see there that there the oil was controlled not by Iran no. up until that point, 1901, all the way into the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And they were obviously getting the short end of the stick with this deal. They, like many other countries, sought to nationalize their oil resources back in 1950. This directly led to a coup in 1953, an overthrow of their democratically elected governing structure, but not a coup of the people, not a genuine uh, mass of the proletariat rising or something. No, uh, this regime change came from outside of Iran. Yeah, exactly. There was a, a prime minister who had been elected and everything. And then, of course, not of course, but as we have seen before, British and in this case, American intelligence agencies both decided they needed to do something. And it was mostly British intelligence contacting American intelligence and saying, hey, we need your help with this. Tally-ho. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they replaced the democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mosaddegh, with, uh, with this guy that's known as the Shah. He was also known as uh, the King of Kings uh, to his friends and I guess to yeah. himself. You know, to his friends. The, the, you call me the King of Kings. That's yeah. Like, that's like the informal name. K-O-K. -K. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it was the Shah Simshah, some, something to that effect. Uh -huh. um, Muhammad Reza Shah. This dude, Ben. Oh, Reza pa Pahlavi. Yeah. He was uh, <laughs> tremendously unpopular. Not an opinion. That's a fact. Yeah, exactly. Um, you can find out more about this whole 
situation that occurred during the 1953 Iranian coup. If you search for things like TPA-JAX or Operation Ajax, that was the CIA's version, and also Operation Boot, B-O-O-T, that was the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, the British Intelligence Agency, also known as MI6. Mm-hmm. That was their version. And so he ends up uh, – the the Shah – uh, was it ends up being the last shot of Iran. The the timing will differ a little bit, but he would be considered active, uh, not although not an absolute monarch, active from September nineteen forty one until February of nineteen seventy nine, when he was overthrown by the Iranian people, and. Normally, you would think, wow, that's fantastic. The uh, people are rising up, right? Democracy. Uh, they are pursuing what they as a community or as a state consider uh, their own will, their own independence. However, the overthrow led to the creation of a theocratic regime, a modern theocratic regime. They are the rulers of Iran today. So – So what we see is a move ideologically, right? Uh, A move uh, to a more Western Iran under the Shah and then – All of a sudden you get a slingshot effect when it goes – when Khomeini comes into power. Did you know that the English word check was derived from the word Shah? Like the idea of checkers and check and checkmate. I just – was Googling Shaw and that came up. I thought that was really interesting. (laughs) Interesting. You're over there just Googling Shaw. I'm just Googling Shaw, baby. (laughs) So I'm going to – we should start calling money Shahs. That's great. No, just, it, Shahs. Is, it's derived from Shah, uh, from Persian via Arabic, Latin and French uh, and related terms are checker, chess, exchequer um, and they also originate from that word. Though I don't see the, the connection in the way it sounds but um, Shah does mean king and I guess the idea of, you know, checkmate. Of- just a silly aside, just to, just to lighten the mood for a second. That's not silly. It's I fun. Think, I think that's really smart. So now we've explored Iran – from the beginning of time all the way up until almost 1980. Mm-hmm. Why don't we jump into the modern Iran or the more modern Iran into today? But we'll do it right after a quick hangout with a sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today 
at purdueglobal.edu. So in the decades since the overthrow, several of several of your fellow conspiracy realists listening live may have been around and seen this in the news. In the decades since that 1979 overthrow, Iran has been portrayed as an adversary of the West. Uh, growing up, I, I remember personally uh, thinking, trying to figure out as a kid if Star Trek was making political commentary and if mm. Klingons were supposed to be like Iran or something. Interesting. It's a very loaded, loaded show in terms of symbols. Yeah, in popular culture... Iran has has been the enemy several times. Right, right. And the primary antagonists of Iran historically have been Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States. And its primary allies have been Russia and Syria with some European allies attempting to act as peace brokers or be neutral. Uh, for most of us in the United States, Iran is presented as a hardline Islamic theocracy. And there is an elected president – but the actual leader is the Ayatollah, who is the country's supreme religious authority. The current supreme leader of Iran is a fellow named Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Uh, he's been in power since 1989, 10 years after the revolution. Yeah. Have you guys seen the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry gets a fatwa put out on him because he makes fun of the Ayatollah? Yes. yes. It's great. And he, how does he get out of it? Well, that, I don't want to spoil the season. But, okay. Um, <clears throat> it, it does involve making, he's got a musical idea called Fatwa the Musical where he Ooh. plays Salman Rushdie. And uh, that displeases the Ayatollah um, because he sort of makes fun of him on a late show. And that sets off the uh, absurdity Ooh. that is Curb Your Enthusiasm. But there, I, we do want to say there's not a racist representation any more so than is typical for Curb Your Enthusiasm. The, the uh, religious authorities that he's beefed up with are presented as ultimately like kind of cool people. Yeah, politicians, diplomats. Well, there's a real argument over ketchup, I yeah. want to say. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> anyway, check it out. It's fun. And it also gives you a little bit of insight into this stuff through a slightly absurdist comedic lens. <laughs> yeah. Well, either way, 1989 mm. until 2018 is a long dang time to be in True. power. Yeah, and I just only bring that up because the idea of a fatwa and that this man is so powerful that he can literally snap his fingers and then any of his followers are just, you know, your persona non grata. He can mm -hmm. end you. Oh, boy. And a, a fatwa isn't always going to be, by any means, some sort of mafia hit. They can be, but a fatwa is more like a legal opinion almost or uh, an authoritative declaration. So a fatwa could be a recognition of a slight change in a ritual as well. Uh, but we, again, in the West are most often going to hear of fatwas as a, uh, a declaration that somebody is persona non grata. That's right. But it, I guess you say, like you say, it could also be a change in the sort of the party line on mm -hmm. interpretation of religious text, right? Something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the tension that permeated the decades since the revolution, uh, it, it's hard to distill it into a single sentence or a single example because there was so much both on a regional and global scale. And there was also outright conflict such as the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 until 1988 uh, This and then series of other wars, some of which the U.S. was involved in. Yeah, the Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm and all that in 1990, 1991. Mm. Um, I mean, in in my mind as a child growing up, that is – that's how I knew – that's the only reason I knew about Iran and Iraq at that time, did, through those conflicts. Did I ever tell you I met uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, the general? No way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I was not uh, – not in an official capacity, I should say. I was a kid. Interesting. Oh. Yeah. Just like at a park, you guys – he was just sitting on a bench and then – you yeah, and family and then it, just like we're there. Yeah, and, and we sat on the other side of the bench. <laughs> yeah. We didn't talk, but we passed envelopes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. uh, but that that guy we remember was um, very prominent in the American public eye during this time. What was accomplished in those wars? It certainly wasn't the de-escalation of this tension 
because the Middle East has further destabilized. And right now, in 2018, distrust runs extremely high on all sides of the conflict because what we're looking at is the escalation of a proxy war in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing that is a an open secret – it feels weird to even call it a secret, is that the government of Iran funds militias in other countries, in Syria, in Lebanon, there's Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And uh, some, of these, some of these organizations are considered by the West to be terrorist groups, but to their supporters, they're considered to be freedom fighters, which is another definition – or contradiction that we run into often. Yeah, and speaking of freedom fighters, you may recall the U.S.'s involvement with the Iran-Contra scandal where mm -hmm. we were illegally selling weapons to Iran uh, without Congress knowing, without anyone else knowing. Uh, and then there's the whole, the whole situation with us selling weapons to Iraq as well during the Iran-Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So there's just the United States and this region, it just has this history, man. Where we we tend to do some shady stuff, right, right, and maybe that's the fog of war. Uh, maybe there's something larger at play because one of the questions that we consistently run into when we talk about why there's intervention in one state or one region over another, right? Uh, one one of the things we run into is whether there is something greater at play behind the curtain. So consider, for instance. Uh, countries that are resource poor or at least comparatively not not as uh, fortunate in terms of the resources uh, consider all the all the countries that are struggling with poverty with human rights abuse with brutal authoritarian dictatorships why is the US not there why is the West not there for some people for the cynics in the crowd the answer is resource based and Iran's case they argue that this intervention is specifically due to the oil that was discovered way back in the early 1900s so what what's going on with Iran and oil I just got to say I don't think you have to be cynical to have that view I think you just got to have your eyes open bro that's all, that's all I'm saying. And guys, if you're if you just to, to set the scene, Matt's eyes right now are wide open. <laughs> um, well, just uh, here's a quote from the World Bank. Ready? Iran ranks second in the world, second in the world in natural gas reserves, and fourth in the world in proven crude oil reserves. Like just okay, that's massive. This this world still to this day runs on oil, and. Just knowing that that exists there, all of that crude oil underneath the feet of each and every Iranian human being, that, uh, I don't know. I think that tells a lot about the current situation and past situations. Absolutely. Agreed. There's a massive amount of energy in the ground there mm -hmm. that is not under BP's control, that is not under the control of a Western energy conglomerate or a, or a state actor, right? Yep. And whether, But it could be, Ben. But it was once upon a time. It could right? be again. Remember the good old days? Did we mention in 1907 Russia and Britain's secret treaty? No. To divide Iran? No. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> and Russia is their ally, remember. So we've got this quick look at the broad strokes of Iranian geopolitical history and current climate. As we said, vastly oversimplified, but we wanted to hit some of those big points. It's easy to see how Iran's antagonists would not want the country to have any sort of nuclear capability regardless of whether – like to Noel's point, regardless of how much they say it's just for peaceful purposes, there's not really a way to stop it. Right, uh, you can't to, separate to, the two. Right, you can't. There's not a different process. Yeah, but we're not going to like stop making nuclear power. It's not like we're standing in line to give up all this stuff. It's true. We still have the second largest number of nuclear warheads. We being the U.S., not Matt and Noel. It's funny. I actually looked it up. We only get twenty percent of our power from nuclear. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Well, we also have a very powerful uh, fossil fuel based. Industry mm. and they have a lot of legislative hooks. Yeah, big time. And, uh, and speaking of legislative 
hooks or I guess hangups, it's very difficult to build new nuclear power plants in this oh. country. Oh, yeah. Very difficult. I actually used to cover – that was my beat when I was a reporter for Georgia Public Radio and I covered the new um, reactor they were trying to build at Plant Vogel in Augusta and it's still hung up in red tape. It's, it's, it's been years. They, mm-hmm. they just can't make it happen. So all the ones we have are aging and um, very, very old legacy yeah. reactors. And need extensive infrastructure repairs. Big time. Right? This is interesting. I just, mm-hmm. you know, just as an aside. And there's another, there's another question here. What, what's the motivation for this general historical tension? What went wrong? What's happening now? Why? That's, that's the big question. Why? We'll answer it after a word from our sponsors. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Here's where it gets crazy. So, oddly enough, not being sarcastic here, it is kind of odd, you will hear continuing and contradictory explanations for the historically aggressive actions of modern Western powers against Iran and for Iran's actions in the region. In the case of the first oil exportation agreements, Darcy remember him from earlier, did pay for the concession, but it was, uh, as as you guys said, a sweetheart deal. And just a few years later, by 1907, there's that secret treaty we were mentioning. Mm-hmm. Russia and Britain already signed a deal to divide Iran up between themselves without consulting the Iranian government. Oh, wow. So Russia said, we want the top half. Yeah. We want more control of Central Asia. We're still playing the great game. And Britain said, cool, we want the bottom half because we have oil there and we consider it ours. The great game, by the way, if you don't know what that is, listen to our episode on the great game. The great game. Oh, man. Between Russia and – well – I was going to say Europe, but mm-hmm. the United Kingdom mostly. Yeah. Oh, man. That was fascinating. I think that – you know what? I think some of those guys on the Russian side, I think they really did believe in magic. I think they did believe <laughs> they were practicing occult stuff. I mean you kind of had to in the time. It was really the uh, sign of the times. You know what? You're probably correct. And speaking of the times, 
in World War I, Iran was again a battleground for rival imperialist powers. It during World War One, Iran said, "Hey, we're neutral. We're staying out of this." Uh, so the British forces invaded to guard their oil lifeline because you know they're a naval power and they needed this fossil fuel to be the engine for their war effort. Yeah, and remember, all the oil at this time in Iran is controlled by Britain. Right, but they're still getting a a flat rate, I yeah, believe. Yeah. Right. Uh, to Noel's earlier point, the. The thing here is we see some of the first contradictions occurring early on. So we said we, – we mentioned Britain's obsession with Iranian oil, right, or, or Persian oil as they called it at the time. The Western powers in World War I advanced an ideological argument, mm-hmm. one that is probably going to be familiar with a lot of people today. They said we're fighting World War I because we want to free the Middle East from this outdated – Ottoman rule from the Ottoman Empire. It, it's feudalism, they said. Yeah. That's, that's garbage juice. That's trash. Yeah, and we want Iran to be independent and free and of its own rule, right? That's what they said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that, sounds, that sounds real. Yeah, people should be free, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. We're just looking out for your best interest, Iran. Mm-hmm. And we're going to help you protect your oil. It'd be a shame if something happened to all that oil. <laughs> <laughs> right. So for people who are critical of Western actions in Iran over the past century, to them, this narrative, this story is one of repression, of controlling resources and extracting them for the benefit of a foreign power. For those who are supportive of intervention in Iran, not just what has happened recently or what may be happening soon, uh, the issue comes down to a couple of publicly declared beliefs. Saudi Arabia believes that if Iran is not economically isolated, not militarily crippled, it will strengthen its influence beyond its border. It will use its proxy groups, its military organizations to disrupt the status quo, to take economic resource control away from Saudi Arabia while also propagating Shia Islam in areas that are under Sunni Islam control. So one of the things that Saddam Hussein was worried about when he was in control of Iraq uh, was that the Shia population of Iraq would rise up and destabilize the state. Yeah. Uh, And just so you've probably heard this in the news or somewhere, groups like Hezbollah are one of those proxy groups uh, somewhat controlled by Iran. Yeah, absolutely. And This becomes an ideological battle in many respects, a truly ideological battle because from the Saudi perspective, there's a struggle against disruption and instability. And this is a huge concern given the chaos that's already consumed. Iraq is eating Syria as we speak and uh, plagues Yemen. Saudi forces are already heavily entrenched in Yemen and you you don't hear much about it on the news. It is interesting how Yemen was all over the news for what? A month or two, maybe not even that long, a couple of cycles, yeah. and then it went away. But the fighting hasn't stopped. The fighting hasn't stopped just because the camera stopped rolling, mm-hmm. right? It's something we would all do well to remember. Uh, the second thing, and I, I should say these are not first and second in terms of any kind of priority or hierarchy. The second thing concerns the government of Israel, which sees Iran and as an existential threat, meaning that they don't see Iran as – some sort of rival nation that might compete in trade, they see it as a country that has prioritized eliminating their country. It's a ticking time bomb. Yeah, just so, right? Like how um, various Israeli prime ministers have said Iran is one year away from making a nuclear bomb. Yeah, or like the way we worry that like sun flares are going to fry us all in our sleep. Yeah, I mean there's – I'm not kidding. Yeah. It's because it's really – it's a, not a question of a small conflict. It's – they're thinking in terms of every man, woman and child. Yeah, and it's an ancient theological disagreement essentially was what that boils down to, the, the, the tension there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was around long before the United States. Long before the oil was important at all. L- long before uh, uh, laser disc. <laughs> Definitely. I think I had a misstep there. Have you ever actually held a laser disc? Yes. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing in the world. It's like a giant gold LP. Mm-hmm. You have it, to flip it. 
You have to flip it. Partway through. <laughs> and Steve's like, what the hell? You, you, I'm getting an expensive thing, a movie, and I have to flip the movie? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I get, no, I'm, no, don't it, be sorry. I, 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 I got worked up about having this. To, this is a legitimate gripe, Noel. I had, uh, I had people under the stairs, and it ruined the flow, the cinematic flow of the film. I'm all about flip flipping it. a record, because that you, you sequence the record, and I have like sort of like a little moment to pause and reflect. Movies? No. So what did these people under the stairs do? do for you to keep them under the stairs. They were cannibally zombie things, right? They were. So there was a a couple that was religious. They were religious extremists. And if children did not adhere to their rules, the children they adopted, they would mutilate them and force them to live in this cartoonishly large basement where they became cannibals. And there was a gimp suit. I remember mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Actually, yeah. As, as it turns out, funny you should mention this, it's actually meant to be an allegory for the U.S.'s relationship with Iran. Whoa. Gimp suit and all, my friends. Wait, are, are you being serious? I am not being serious. Oh, okay. I'm sure we could worm our way into making <laughs> that work. We Wait. could get there. Actually, it turns out all Wes Craven movies, especially the Nightmare on Elm Street series, are complex uh, allegories for geopolitical conflicts. That's right. So uh, write to us uh, write to us with the name of a Wes Craven film, and one of us will explain to you exactly which geopolitical conflict that is an analogy for. What if, what if it we might ask, take us a while to figure it out. Yeah. What if we ask people to send us their – the movie and why they think it's an allegorical geopolitical thing? Even I would, better. I would love to get their uh, ideas or just send us your entire dissertation on you know which, which film and what, which conflict it represents. Yeah. Uh, I, I – can't speak for everyone, but I will. I love reading dissertations when you all send them in. We got a great one uh, regarding Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes from our pal Simon Workman. Or do it verbally uh, by calling our eight hundred number one eight three three S T D W Y T K. We will play it on the show. We swear. Yeah, we can't wait to hear from you, uh, assuming that uh, the world as we know it still exists when you are hearing this. So, back to the idea of this existential threat. It's not to say that destabilization is not a problem, but not existing is a huge problem, right, Mm -hmm. from their perspective, from anyone's perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as so long as Iran exists in anything close to its current political state, the government of Israel believes Iran will spend massive amounts of time, weaponry, and blood attempting to eradicate it entirely from the earth threatening disputed regions that Iran considers to be its own territory, like the Golan Heights, right, which were Syrian territory for a while, or threatening to influence areas that Israel later hopes to incorporate into its territory, for example, uh, in future peace settlements with uh, Palestine, right? In the U.S., this is often often reported, right? And it's reported around the world – because that is the belief. And here in the U.S. at least, we often see this cited as a um, uh, as something that applies to the states as well, right? And you'll see the chance of protesters saying death to America or death to the West or calls from uh, Iranian hardline politicians saying we need to eradicate this nation. In the past, some Western powers have portrayed their interventions in Iran not as a mission for resource extraction and economic control, but as another theater in the great war of ideas, the great war between capitalism and communism. So there was always a reason to go into Iran. Those reasons have changed over time, but there has always been some sort of reason. And we have to ask ourselves – are we talking about – is it really about hearts and minds? Is it really about survival? Is it about ideology? Or is it about, uh, as uh, Smedley Butler would say, is it about being an economic hitman? Is it about extracting and controlling the means of wealth and production? Yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's what a lot of – I mean that, that is what – a lot of people say, including people who support intervention in Iran, like uh, fans of real politic, sort mm-hmm. of the uh, the Kissinger descendants. They will say, yeah, 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 definitely communist, definitely communism, mainly oil, but also, yeah, definitely communism, mainly oil, though. Yeah, uh, that's that's true. So for 
critics on either side, here's the weird part. They, be, they both believe there's plenty of stuff they don't want you to know about this conflict. So for people who see this as a matter of ideological threats, those opposing further harsh sanctions and military incursions, the quote-unquote moderates, they're the same thing as anybody who's actively supporting Iran. So for many of these people, if you say, well, these sanctions are counteractive or they're, they're not going to have the attendant effect, what they're hearing is that you're saying, I'm a member of Hezbollah because there's extremism there. It's the old, uh, if you're not with us, you're against us mentality that we see in so many ideological arguments, right? Yeah. And this idea hinges on the concept of Iran as a hardline theocracy. But hey, guess what? It is. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I mean, and again, this is not the people. This is just the government, right? Uh, the fear here is that a rising Iran would inevitably become a nuclear power and exert brutal control over the region, possibly uh, discriminating against non-Muslims or Muslims who were not their branch uh, who were not from their branch of Islam, right? So yeah. Sunni Muslims, for instance. Yeah, basically, it would just be a brand new Persian Empire from the old days. Mm -hmm. One that would attempt to take over Saudi Arabia, erase Israel, and turn the other countries in the area into puppet states, you know, with some kind of tin pot uh, dictator, or dare I say, a shah. Mm -hmm. In other words, they think Iran would do to other countries the same thing that Britain did to Iran in the past. And that is a, I would say, a good fear for those which had done harm to it in the past. It's, a, it's at least a – it's good to at least imagine that because you – one does reap what one sows, right? It, well, it's also understandable. It's not like it would be a sudden plot twist. Yeah, exactly. You know. If you're writing that out uh, in mm -hmm. a revenge movie, that's what would happen. Which I think was it uh, – which Nightmare on Elm Street is that? Is it Dream Warriors? The Dream Warriors? Yeah, yeah, I think it's Dream Warriors <laughs> yeah. when we were watching that one. Uh, for people who see this as purely a matter of resource control, the Iranian oil reserves specifically, the energy reserves uh, or natural gas reserves, et cetera, are too important globally to not be used, to be not, not be part of this great supply chain. But for people who are opponents of Iran uh, – that resource is also too important to be used to the advantage of this state. And many of the people who believe this is entirely a matter of resource economic control are opponents of Western intervention in Iran. But here's the thing. Those people who are opponents of Western intervention in Iran, they are not opponents of intervention in general. You got to remember, Russia, right, is a great ally of Iran. They also attempted to cut it in half and take over it. Uh, that was a long time ago, buddy. Don't worry. It was a little more than a century ago. We're cool now. We're cool now. We're cool now. But this – what we're saying here, what we're showing is that the pat explanations that you are receiving on the news, if you're tuning into broadcast stuff, if you're listening for four or five minutes on your way home to something, they're either going to be about a very specific event such as the 11-minute speech on May 8th, withdrawing from this agreement, or they're going to um, or they're going to pass over a lot of the history that led to mm -hmm. these moments. Uh, these, these kinds of things, these conflicts never occur in a vacuum. Yeah. There's not a leader who wakes up, has a bad day, finds out the palace is out of Ovaltine, and then decides to, you know, bomb Uzbekistan. Yeah. But you know what you will hear when you're listening to those a lot of the times? What's that? You'll hear someone from the Rand Corporation or some other think tank come on and tell you exactly uh, what's going on in their, in their uh, sphere, their analysis, right? And it's, and it's usually one of these exact stances. So what is – yeah, we, have we still not done an episode on think tanks? No. I don't think so, no. Do you, uh, do you guys have a favorite think tank? Uh, I don't know. I, would you consider Council on Foreign Relations in some way a think tank? Sure. Yeah. Not a not like a White House think tank. Yeah. But what about like the Southern Poverty Law Center or something like that? Hey, that's a. I, you know what? I I would consider that a think tank. To be right? honest, I think think tank is kind of. I think think <laughs> tank is kind of an amorphous concept. I don't quite fully understand what 
makes a think tank. Yeah, it's like an umbrella term almost, Mm -hmm. right? Because they do a lot of different things. It's like a work group. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. You pay a bunch of very well-informed people to get together and well-inform each other. Consult. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Policy wonks, experts, professors. Well, we want to hear what your favorite think tanks are too or the most dangerous ones. Rand, you're up there. Mm -hmm. But uh, at this point, we have to – we have to end an episode with no real conclusions. We don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East over the next few months, over the next year. Uh, but we do know that currently we, no matter where we live, no matter where you're listening to this from, uh, unless you are in space currently and plan to stay there, in which case, hi and Thanks for checking out the show. <laughs> yeah, and also good on you. That, that's that's a difficult life to lead. Yeah, zero gravity is very bad for you. But as long as you are living on the same ball of mud and fire with the rest of us, you and Matt and Noel and Paul and I are all in the middle of an extremely dangerous and fragile time. The already destabilized Middle East may well become the starting point for World War III. I know that sounds hyperbolic. I know that sounds alarmist. And I know people say that about like everything that's ever happened. Well, but maybe it's already. Maybe it has already become. Yeah, I read something recently uh, where a commentator said – they had the increasingly creepy feeling that they were living through a future Wikipedia paragraph titled Events Leading to the War. Yeah. And but it, doesn't it – you're right, Ben, that yes. you're saying that everything feels like it could be that. Yeah. Increasingly so, I would say it feels like that. And again, they don't happen in a vacuum. Here's where we are as we're, as, as we're recording this. Uh, Israel and Iran are firing directly at each other's stuff. Uh, through Syria, mm-hmm. right? And Iran publicly stated that if the deal collapses, just because the U.S. pulled out, by the way, doesn't mean it's going to collapse. Uh, it just severely weakens it. That They said that if the deal collapses, they're going to stop holding up their end of the bargain and they will resume enrichment activities, to which Saudi Arabia immediately said, well, if Iran resumes uh, nuclear enrichment activities, we're going to assume they're making a bomb, and that means we're going to get a bomb too. Israel, right now, for anyone who doesn't know, officially has a stance called strategic ambiguity when it applies to nuclear weapons. They have never stated that they have a nuclear weapon. But they got some. But it <laughs> it is – Barely an open secret uh, that they that they do. Even NPR today mentioned Israel being the only major nuclear power in the region. Right. And the United States does likely have nuclear weaponry positioned around there. Uh, no one knows what the Russian submarine um, boundaries are, how mm-hmm. far out those nuclear subs go. But what – What we do know uh, is that if a military conflict escalates, the U.S. is well positioned to exert control outside of the borders, but invading Iran would be a bloodbath. And you can look at a map that the three of us have all seen off air. Uh, You can look at a map of military bases in the Middle East and how they ring Iran, U.S. military bases. They're, they're through the Strait of Hormuz, which I think we cover in the petrodollar. Um, they're through Central Asia. They're ringing the boundaries of the country. And this all means that if Iran, perhaps with outside assistance, like uh, a figure like A.Q. Khan, who gave Pakistan the bomb, mm-hmm. if Iran has outside assistance or independently creates or even gets closer to creating a bomb, then in short order, there could very easily be not one but three nations in the Middle East with nukes and with millennia-old conflicts and and waiting. Surrounded by subs with nukes. Surrounded by subs with nukes, uh, surrounded by military bases, yeah. And this – there's a big question here though. Um, if and it goes back to North Korea as well. Like, if nuclear weapons are so dangerous in terms of your relationship with other countries, why would someone pursue them? 
Well, I think the we see a great example of this with the current uh, negotiations with North Korea. For the first time in a long time, North and South Korea came together and actually began having talks. And then the United States is now going to be meeting with North Korea. And, you know, the, allegedly the discussions will be about disarming even North Korea and stopping their nuclear capabilities. But they're coming to that table with nukes. And just being able to sit down for negotiations with a nuke, I think, creates a much more powerful position than if you might be getting some nukes. That's a dangerous position. Can we talk for a second just to – as we wrap up, why the current administration is so opposed to the Iran nuclear deal? Why it's such a bad deal? Yeah. Quote, I was doing quote fingers. Yeah, yeah. There's a – there are a couple of thoughts about that and supporters of the current administration see it as following through on a campaign promise. While campaigning for the office of the presidency, Donald Trump cited the Iran deal as the worst deal he'd ever seen. Uh, he also uh, said that he understands it more than, than anybody else. Yeah, than, than any, anyone else. Like he's done a, a ton of research on it. And the – It seems to me like it's more he just means he's done a lot of deals. He's uniquely qualified to mm-hmm. dissect and understand deals. Mm-hmm. Well, he has some generals in his ear that are telling him about these sunset – Right. Parts of the deal and saying, hey, this is really dangerous. Um, this isn't going to work. They're still going to make it. Right. The bomb. Supporters of the deal, including uh, former President Barack Obama, who signed the executive order, saw it as a way to buy time to denuclearize uh, Iran or prevent it permanently from acquiring nuclear weaponry. Opponents of the deal, including those generals that you mentioned, Matt, say all we're doing, we're not buying time for ourselves. We're giving time to a, um, to a belligerent government that is, that is sure going to shake hands and play nice at the table, but then when they go back, they're going to make a bomb. Yeah. And they're, we're not really stopping them. And there was a um, – there was cooperation, international cooperation leading to the Trump administration's announcement because you'll remember just before he announced they were pulling out of the deal, the media and uh, – or at least here in the US uh, released a story that showed Israel, I believe, had acquired – some documents that they said indicated Iran was not holding up its end of the bargain. And those things have been tossed back and forth by policy walks uh, regarding their import or their veracity. But that's that's ultimately it, is the idea that the deal didn't completely cut off nuclear activity at the bud. I see. Uh, And yet there are still supporters and people that are remaining in the deal, like allies of ours that are sort of disappointed that we are making this move. Oh, yeah. Much oh, like yeah. the Paris Agreement. Exactly. And I think uh, at least uh, Obama came out and you know, have this having been his show, mm-hmm. getting this thing put together, um, said it was mainly about creating a sense that we're not going to follow through with our commitments and that, that could cause destabilization in terms of our relationships with others and the expectation right. that we will just, you know, turn tail at the at the last when it, when it suits us. That is the huge that that is the huge problem with the the precedent being set uh, because look other countries will have experts who know about how domestic U.S. politics work and sure it, they will understand the legality of this contradiction but it also violates the concept of keeping one's word as a country and this will make things tremendously difficult going forward in various aspects of international policy. Uh, One thing that's getting a lot of play now is the uh, successful or uh, seemingly successful negotiations that are starting with DPRK or North Korea and they may denuclearize. Uh, They may not. It's it's impossible to predict the future with full accuracy but it is entirely – is entirely a beneficial thing for uh, rival world powers like China and Russia to be able to say, hey, we may not be perfect, but if we agree to you, we agree with you that we'll do something, we'll actually do it. Yeah. 
And that's a that's I mean that's a dangerous thing. So I, we're going over our time. Mission Control is probably getting a little <laughs> little irritated with us. And this is this is a scary scary subject, and it's tremendously controversial. But if we end on anything, we should we should end on the most important part to remember. The most important thing to remember in this entire episode is that in Iran, in Israel, in Saudi Arabia, in the United States, the people and the government are not the same. They often do not hold the same beliefs as their leaders. The, the nation of Iran, the nation of Saudi Arabia and Israel, the United States, it's not one big army of people who dress up in uniform and can't wait to kill anyone who doesn't look like them or doesn't you know, have the same opinion of what makes a good pizza. Just imagine a single teacher in every single one of those nations that wakes up in the morning, gets in their vehicle, whatever it is, mm -hmm. gets to work, works, goes home, goes to bed, gets back up, gets in their vehicle, goes to work and just does it over and over and over again. They're all human beings. Yeah. They wake up in the morning just like us. They hate traffic. Just like anybody who's in traffic. Pants one leg at a time, sure. like people say. Yeah. Humans do. Yeah. They, uh, they have ridiculous in-jokes and crushes and frenemies. They probably like some of the same music that you do because music is everywhere. Chances are they enjoy cheese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They probably think your country's leaders are kind of Looney Tunes. And unless they are Russian, the odds are that they're not too impressed with their own leaders either. We say that because Putin has a massive approval rating. Officially. And they all believe that they are the good guys. So what do you believe, folks? Is this a conflict of self-preservation? Is it resource control? Is it a matter of ideology, hearts and minds, and, and freedom? And what does freedom mean in this situation? And how does freedom for one group affect freedom for another? These are great questions. I don't know the answer. Uh, yeah, well, it's for, it's for, you know, we're crowdsourcing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we have to. So what do you think? Write to us on Twitter or Facebook where we're Conspiracy Stuff. You can find us on Instagram, Conspiracy Stuff Show. If you want to give us a call, again, our number is 1-833-STD-WYTK. Call that number right now. Leave us a message. You might get it on the air. Yeah, and if you want, to. and that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one eight three three S T D W Y T K. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.